So in, in my career of, in preaching, I really used every device that my sick and twisted mind could come up with to try to keep people engaged and listening during the sermon. I have used things that border on the insane and the foolish, and this is one of those days to try to pique your interest in 2 Samuel 7. We've started out with a video from the year 2000 from a rapper named Eminem. Now, for those of you who did not grow up in the 90s as a teenager like I did, it's hard to really uh, calculate now what a big deal this rapper was back then. In fact, he has sold over 100 million albums. That's a very elite club. And because of this, he has been dubbed by Rolling Stone magazine as, our, uh, as the modern era's king of hip-hop. Well, the video you just saw was from the year 2000, the Video Music uh, Awards of MTV in Radio City Music Hall in New York. And this was the year that Eminem released a really big album at the time called the Marshall Mathers EP. In fact, it had quickly risen to become the fastest, uh, the, the most selling or the fastest selling solo album in all of music history at the time. It was a really big deal. And he performed this song at the MTV Video Music Awards entitled The Real Slim Shady. Slim Shady was one of the stage names that he used and continues to use today. And the song was meant to poke fun at his success and the impact of his success on other artists. See, Eminem looked at the music industry at the time, particularly hip-hop, and he saw all of these emerging, up-and-coming young artists, and they were all imitating his style. They were imitating his swagger. They were imitating his way with words, hoping that they might also achieve the peak of his success. And so he staged this spectacle that you just saw if you were paying attention, in which he convinced hundreds of young men about his size to dress up like him. And to cut their hair like him and dye it blonde, the same exact color, and put on a white t-shirt and baggy jeans the way he wore back in the 90s. And to flood into Radio City Music Hall while millions of people are watching on TV as he played his famous song, I'm the Real Shady, the only Slim Shady. All the other Slim Shadies are just imitating, so will the real Slim Shady please stand up, please stand up, please stand up. Can I tell you, maybe the most challenging thing of doing what I do week in and week out, of standing up in front of folks, big groups and small groups, attempting to teach the Bible, attempting to teach the Word of God. The challenge is that there are so many diverse conceptions of God in this room right now. There are so many random imitations of who God really is. And, and here's the, the kicker. We all assume that our default conception of God that's buried deep within our subconscious that we rarely question, we rarely articulate, we rarely talk about, we assume that that conception of who God is that typically stretches way back into our childhood, we assume it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We assume that that view of God is biblical. We assume that that view of God is Christian, that this is Jesus' view of God. But guess what? All of our views of God are affected by us, sometimes tainted by us. They're affected by our experiences of success, of failure, of achievement, of pain. Our, our default view of God is affected by the various key relationships we've had in our lives with fathers and mothers, siblings, pastors from the past, even church members both now and in the past. All of these varying conceptions floating around about who God is deep within our subconscious. And we naturally filter that view of God through the words of Scripture 
assuming that this view and scripture align, and that's not always the case. Let me show you a couple of examples. The, the prominent best-selling author, Richard Dawkins, you may have heard of him. He's a very pro- kind of rather militant atheist voice in our society. In his book, The God Delusion, here's how he describes the God of the Bible. He says, the God of the Bible is a monster. It's very, very hard for anybody to deny that. He's like a hyped-up Ayatollah Khomeini. Now, Richard Dawkins is a smart guy. He's not stupid. And he's reading the exact same Bible that I am, and yet he comes across with this version of God that seems so dramatically different, obviously, than the version of God that I believe in. Give you another quote from uh, storyteller and prairie home companion guy Garrison Keillor. If any of you guys listen to that show, uh, Garrison Keillor tells fictional stories about a place in Minnesota called Lake Wobegon. And at the center of Lake Wobegon is the Lake Wobegon Lutheran Church. And Garrison Keillor is essentially writing about the church of his childhood. He's writing about the God that he grew up believing in. It's a pretty cool description. He says, growing up in Lake Wobegon Lutheran Church, what we felt was dread of God's judgment. God, all righteous, his great hairy eyeball glaring down from the sky, reading your every thought and making black marks after your name. There is one way and you are not on it, not even close. You might find it, but don't count on it, not the way you're doing. They said that God is love, but nobody believed it for a minute. It was a culture of fussy women and silent angry men and horrified children. Now those descriptions may be an extreme side of the spectrum when it comes to understandings of the biblical God, but I can guarantee you that the spectrum is a lot wider in here than we might assume. So why is it important? Why, why am I bothering you this morning on July 5th a bunch of psychobabble about your subconscious and how in a very default unconscious way you think about God simply because of this. What you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you think. I really believe that. It really is why I do what I do. I really believe that what you think about when you think about God is the most important thing that you think. It'll set the trajectory of your life. It'll set the trajectory of your relationships. So if you believe that God is wrathful and vengeful, just like Garrison Keillor described the Lake Wobegon Lutheran Church, then most likely you're going to have some anger issues to work through in your life. You're going to be a person hell-bent on vengeance at various corners of your life. If you believe that God is emotionless and distant, the big white guy with the big white beard like Gandalf and Lord of the Rings sitting on a throne somewhere, if that's how you conceive God, you may struggle with distance and a lack of emotion in your relationships. If you believe that God is not on your side, but that God is out to get you, if you believe that God has fundamentally and ultimately let you down, that's going to play a part in the stability or lack thereof of your relationships, of your lack of self-esteem. A healthy view of God is key to a healthy life. And yet I'm so convinced that there are so many imitations of the Christian God rolling around in our heads that sometimes I just want to rap along with Marshall Mathers, will the real God in the room please stand up, please stand up, please stand up. And it's in 2 Samuel chapter 7, our text for today, from the life of David, that God does that. That God, in the middle of the ins and outs of David's daily life, God definitively stands up and shows himself to be a God who is better than our best dreams. So go ahead and turn or click to 2 Samuel 7. That's what I'd like to speak to you about this morning. I'd like to speak to you on better than our best dreams. 
So I'm going to read the first two verses, and if you'll keep your your screen or your Bible open, we're going to track by the end all the way uh, through verse 22. But the first two verses are so key because they give us incredible insight into how David is conceiving God, how David is thinking about God. Look at what it says. After the king was settled in his palace, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him. That is, God has dramatically blessed the life of David, and these blessings only come from the hand of God. And David and everybody knows that, especially back then in that culture. So everything's great. Look what David does, verse 2. He said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God, which was a box that had the Ten Commandments in it, and wherever that box was, that represented the place where the Israelites would come to worship God. They didn't worship the box, they just worshiped God wherever that altar was. David says, here I am living in a palace of cedar, while the ark of God remains in a tent. I want to ask you a question before we continue with the scripture reading that I believe will emerge your default conception of who God is. It'll emerge stuff about the way you thought about God when you were a kid, experiences that you had even long ago in your history. It's a question that really emerges what we actually think about God and about Scripture. And the question is this. If God were behind this curtain right here, in, in some kind of physical form, whatever that looks like for you. God sitting back there on his God throne, you know, surrounded by the angels, however you envision that. I like the naked baby angels shooting arrows from the greeting cards. That, that works for me. But God is back there behind the curtain. And we all got to line up and spend 30 seconds with God face to face. What do you think God would say to you? Like getting past the Bible verses and the churchified answers and the, the, the silly stuff. Like personally and specifically, what do you think God, if you had 30 seconds alone with God, what would he say personally, specifically to where you're living, how you're living, where your life is right now? I think the way that you answer that question is exactly who you think God really is. And when I think about that question, there's a lot of Garrison Keeler and Richard Dawkins in my conception. When I think about the prospect of standing before a holy God with all of my faults and all of my weaknesses and frankly, all my sins, what rushes into my head is all the ways that I'm inadequate and all the ways that I don't add up. And that's why I so identify with King David in the story. I mean, here David is living in a palace, not a cave anymore. I mean, he ran from his life for years. Now he's living in a palace, and what's more, God has given him rest from all his enemies. This is a man who knew what it was like to have a price on his head for years. He ran away from people trying to kill him for a price, and finally that's over. And he's enjoying the blessings of God. He's enjoying what Sean's saying from Romans 8, 28, that God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. David is living into that very truth in his day-to-day life. And still, there's this voice in the back of David's head that says, I'm not sure I'm doing enough. I'm not sure I'm really adequate I'm not sure if all these blessings are really a ruse and at the end of the day, God is really trying to to snub me. I mean, here I am living in a palace of cedar, but I'm not doing enough for God and God's going to get me because of it. I'm, I'm living in a palace of cedar and the ark of God is living in a tent and I fear what God might do to me because of this great breach in my life. 
Notwithstanding the fact that God never complained about the ark being in a tent, God never told David to do anything about the ark being in the tent. David's just dealing with his own internal pressure that looks at the goodness of God around him and says, maybe there's a catch. Maybe God's not this good. And I love the response that God gives through the prophet Nathan, beginning in verse 4, that just sweeps the deck in front of David and tells David, your vision of God is anemic. God says to David, you haven't even begun to believe in my goodness and in who I am. Long scripture reading next, starting in verse 4. That night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me, built me a house of cedar? I mean, God is really coming at David, basically saying, your vision of who I am is all wrapped up around this temple thing. This is your idea, not my idea. This is your hang-up, not my hang-up, God says. Verse 8, now then tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. And I have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. God says, David, I'm going to continue to be good in your life. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men, but my love will never be taken away from him. But the Hebrew is my hesed. It's the word for the covenant commitment of God, this thing in God that just can't resist committing to his people. I, my hesed, my, my love, will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. Here David is so concerned with building the right house for God and the Ark of the Covenant. And God comes through the prophet Nathan to say to David, David, your vision of who I am is way too small. I don't need your house. I'm going to build you a house. God says to David, I'm a God who's better than your best dreams. So why is it that when the rubber meets the road, I have such a hard time visualizing and really believing that. Why is it when the rubber meets the road and I visualize this concept of really standing face to face with God, I cannot imagine that the news will be good. But I have good news for you, and it's gospel news. I believe the message of Scripture, the message of Jesus, can be boiled down to the fact that if God sat down with you individually to talk, just as he did with David, he would shock you 
with his good news in your life. Good news in the midst of your struggle. Good news in the midst of your weakness. Good news in the midst of your failure. Good news in the midst of your sin. God would show himself to be a God who's better than your best dreams. With all of these imitations of God floating around in our heads, surely that is the gospel message of us today. I grew up uh, playing a lot of sports when I was a kid. I know a lot of you did as well. And we've got high school students, middle school students in, in the room who are a part of, of youth sports. And one of the most precious memories about growing up playing sports was my dad coming to see my games. And many of you men, you'll, you'll remember that feeling. And that, that's not a, 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 you know, to be... To, to exclude moms. Moms, we love you, and we love it when you come to see us play our games. But for me, there was just something about dad uh, coming to see me play in my various sports. I played about every sport growing up, except for football, because I weighed about 100 pounds. And I was not good at many of them at all. In fact, I was that kid on the, on the basketball team that could, like, barely make the team, and the coach would put me in when we were up, like, 90 to 12 with, you know, 40 seconds left, and he really needed me to preserve our 88 point cushion then he would turn with pride rice you're in so I wasn't good at many sports but I had a knack for the sport of baseball for whatever reason and in baseball I became a pitcher which was a really fun position to play because you were in control of the game when your team was out in the field and the stands were right in front of you so you learned how to navigate pressure in front of people as a kid it was a really cool experience and I'll never forget my dad coming to see me pitch I'll just never forget the feeling of striking batters out and seeing him up there in the stands. I'll never forget him waiting to the end of the game and giving me advice and critiquing the defensive patterns and talking me through my play and our team's play. It's just, just an amazing experience growing up. And besides baseball, my dad and I, we always grew up playing sports together. We played basketball. We played uh, golf. We played tennis. Just, you know, I had two sisters, so we were the only guys in the house. So it seemed that every Saturday, all kinds of weeknights, we were constantly going to the YMCA, going to the golf course, going to the tennis courts, playing sports together. And along the course of those sports, my dad had a speech that he would give to me. Time and time and time again. If I heard this dad speech once, literally I heard it hundreds of times. It was always be in the car for whatever reason. They're going to practice, coming back from practice, going to play golf, coming back from the golf course, what have you. And dad would put his arm on my shoulder, which you know when you're in middle school and stuff, that's not so cool, so it made me feel uncomfortable. And, and he would say to me, Josh, I got to tell you something. I know I've told you before. And I'm like, yeah, dad, you know, I can recite it for you by this point. He said, but I got to tell you again, I want you to know that if you go out on that pitcher's mound today and you absolutely suck, you are an insult to the sport of baseball. You bean every batter, you can't throw a strike, you can't throw anything approaching a strike. I want you to know, Josh, that I don't love you any less. In fact, I'm just as proud of you. I'm just as excited to cheer you on in baseball if you're absolutely terrible today. He'd say it doesn't matter to me. I just don't care. He would tell me, I want you to know, if you never shoot another jump shot, I don't care. You could quit today. It doesn't matter. If you never hit another golf ball, it doesn't matter to me at all. I'll be just as thrilled that you're my son. You see, my dad was showing me what God was really like when he sat up in the bleachers in my baseball games. My dad was showing me the God who David surprisingly met in 2 Samuel 7 who blew him away with his goodness. My dad was showing me a God better than my best dreams. 
And not all of us get that experience, of course, because of this broken world that we live in. And I did youth ministry for 10 years full time, and I was constantly attempting to help students whose dads had dropped the ball see that their heavenly father was not going to drop the ball in their life. But that's not the main problem. The main problem is, for whatever reason, many of us, perhaps in this room today, don't have that vision of God. We don't have the vision of God as a committed father, a committed parent, sitting in the bleachers and cheering us on with all of his heart, no matter how good or how bad we play the game. Many of you may have a default view of God, a version of God rolling around in your heads that's like a disappointed parent, kind of like the parents of a few teammates that I had growing up. Now, those of you who are parents right now in youth sports or you remember when your kids played youth sports or you're a child in youth sports now, you could probably remember that there are certain parents who are involved in youth sports who are a little bit like too emotionally invested in seven-year-olds playing baseball. You know what I'm saying? My nine-year-old daughter plays uh, traveling soccer, and I get to see this all the time. Parents who are just like a little too into this. It just makes me a little bit uncomfortable. And these are the parents who want to make sure that their kid's team wins and their kid performs top-notch in all circumstances. And I always remember through my various sports that I played, junior high and high school, seeing those kids hang their heads a lot lower than the rest of us after we lost a game. Why? Because they knew they had to get in the car and go home with dad on the way home, and they knew dad was disappointed in their performance. You view God as somebody who's a parent. He's there in your life. He's your heavenly father. But his main interest is how you perform in the field of life. Listen to me. That's not who God is. God is better than that. God is better than your best dreams. Or maybe some of you in the room, you might have a default version of God that's even a little more distant than God the disappointed parent, and that's God the coach of the team. God the coach. God the coach, see, he's not quite close enough to you to be your parent. He's the guy who simply critiques how valuable you are to the team based upon your performance. So when you're being a great spouse and a great parent and a great student, a great employee and a great employer and you're showing up to Mount Bear North Canton and you're serving and you're paying your tithes and you're in a small group and you're doing all the Christian-y stuff right, God's so pumped that you're on his team. But when you're making some mistakes and when your weaknesses are coming to the forefront of your life and when you're struggling with a battle and when you're struggling with sin, God's angry at you, sitting you on the bench, maybe even taking away your salvation because of your problems and your faults. He's not a committed father. He's a coach. Listen, if that's your default conception of God, I've got good news for you. He's better than that. He's better than your best dreams. Well, some people have an even more distant view of God's love than that. And that's not God the disappointed parent or God the coach, but God the umpire. We all who love sports know that the people we love to hate in all sports at every level are the referees, the coaches, I'm sorry, the officials, the umpires, right? Why? Because the umpires don't know the players and they don't even have a stake in who wins the game. They're just there to determine the rules, what's fair and what's foul, what's out, what's in. What's a strike? What's a ball? And so many people still view God as a big cosmic umpire, a hairy eyeball, as Garrison Keillor says, who's just hanging around in your life to let you know when you've been naughty and nice, to let you know all of his rules that you're breaking. He's emotionless. He's careless. 
He's like a judge in a courtroom. And it's terrible the fact that that image of God as a judge in the American courtroom has become the controlling metaphor by which so many of us understand who God is. He's better than that. He's better than your best dreams. There's a fourth view of God that I encounter over and over and over again. And this view of God is espoused and held subconsciously by folks who've been so tainted and hurt by deep and long-standing pain in their lives. Pain that comes from abuse, pain that comes from being dropped by a significant person, a spouse, a parent, pain that comes from abandonment, pain that comes from loss. And I've noticed that with people walking through just pools of pain that emerge from their past, that they transliterate that pain right over to God. And sometimes they have this default view of God as if God is an opposing fan on the other team cheering against you. As if God is just waiting on you to make another mistake so that he can remind you of how worthless you are, so that he can remind you that that person who walked out on you was right and what a joke you are and how lame you are. Do you have that version of God anywhere rolling around in your head? Listen to me. God's tremendously better than that. He's a God who's better than your best dreams. So will the real God please stand up? What would that look like? I think he does just that. In the pen of David. Sean, I want you to come and play as we prepare our hearts for communion. And before we finish the reading from 2 Samuel chapter 7, I actually want to take you to a different place. In Psalm 139, a psalm that David wrote long after this experience he had with God in 2 Samuel 7. A song showing us how much his view of God had changed. Faced with the goodness of God, David awakened to God's reality. He claimed a true vision of who God is. And rather than simply reading this and you reading along, I would encourage you to close your eyes as I read this text. Because I want you to hear it, not just as Josh reading words on a page that are for us scripture. I want you to hear it as the voice of God speaking directly to you, a God who is drunk with love for you. David says in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for the dark is as light to you. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place. When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious are your thoughts about me, O oh God. 
How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. And everybody look right me and download what we just heard from God's word. I don't care what you ever thought about God prior to this moment. David said, like the sands in the seashore, so are your thoughts about me, O God. The truth is that God is thinking about you personally and individually every single moment of every single day. If God had a refrigerator, it is plastered with pictures of you. If God had a wallet, it is filled to the brim with pictures of your life. When God speaks to his angels, he's bragging about the fact that you're his child. God cheers for you. God cries for you. God loves you. God is fixed on you. And when you mess up and when you blow the game, God's right there in the car beside you to put his hand on your shoulder and to say, if you never get it right, I don't love you any less. And faced with a God better than our best dreams, faced with the goodness of God that David had never known in those depths before, his response must and should be our response. David, the text says in 2 Samuel verse 18, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, sovereign Lord? And who is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, O sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. Is this your usual way of dealing with man, sovereign Lord? Yes, it is. What more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant how great you are, O sovereign Lord. There is no one like you, and there is no God but you, as we have heard with our own ears. I'd like to ask our, our hosts at this time to prepare the elements of the Lord's Supper for us to partake of. This is the Christian celebration where we memorialize, remember, and live into the love of God that was ultimately displayed in the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilled for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. This is an open communion. You don't have to be a part of our congregation or our denomination or anything like that in order to participate. This is open to, to all believers, for all who would say, I depend on the love of God in my life. Will you serve the brothers and sisters? In the early centuries of the church, coming to the Lord's table as we are today was often called the agape meal or the love feast. This is where we recognize that we're all beggars, we're all homeless, we're all lifeless, and we're all undeserving. But through Jesus Christ, God has shed out his love on us just as he did upon David. And I want to challenge you during this moment of communion in a very, very specific way. I want to challenge you to receive the love of God in your life. And I mean that very specifically and not in a cliche way. Listen to me. I'm not talking about being saved as we say in the South. I'm not talking about heaven and hell and afterlife and all that stuff. I meet Christians all the time who believe in Jesus, believe in the Bible, but they don't believe at the end of the day that God's love is a mighty torrent in their lives. They don't really believe that they are unable to move the needle of God's love. They really think that through their actions, good or bad, they make God love them more or less. And if that's been your history, I want to challenge you to change the history today. 
through the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ who showed us definitively once and for all that we are loved, we are valued, and when we really, really believe that in our marrow, it changes everything. Grace plus nothing equals everything. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, verse 26 says, As they were eating, Jesus took the bread, he broke it, and he blessed it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, for this is my body. Let us take of the bread. In the same way, he took the cup, gave thanks, and distributed it to them, saying, Drink from this, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the remission of sins. Let us partake of the cup. Lord, in this moment of quiet, I pray that you would speak to us about your goodness as you spoke to David so long ago. I pray for the man or woman who needs to know of your mighty love for them today. I pray for histories that need to change today. Relationships and priorities that need to be cast in a new light the light of your unfailing love. Give us the strength to open up our hearts and to receive of your goodness and to believe that the gospel is too good not to be true. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Will you stand with me?